Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. In this All Right in Sin City, you'll hear part one of a fascinating presentation by Anna Clark, talking about her book, The Poisoned City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy. This presentation was recorded in July at Biblioasis Bookstore in Windsor, Ontario. Anna Clark is a journalist in Detroit. The Poisoned City was named one of the year's best books by the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, Kirkus Reviews, Audible, Amazon, the New York Public Library, and others. It is the winner of the Hillman Prize in Book Journalism and the Rachel Carson Environmental Book Award, and more. And now, here's Anna Clark telling the story of how the water crisis in Flint, Michigan came to be. So, this is a, I'm a, you know, I'm a journalist from Detroit, and I've done a lot of kind of reporting about cities, and I've gotten especially interested in cities that have been in, like, dire straits. I think it's um, uh, partly I've been very intrigued and excited about the ingenuity that comes when we have an opportunity to really like question the very foundation of what a city is, you know, and how we can do it better than we have historically. And um, also just really interested in like what happens when we really, you know, when, you know, we have this like, like, what do you do when you inherit decades of problems you know like the people who are like alive today didn't make every bad decision that led us to the problem that we're having in Detroit or Flint or cities that are like this like all over the world frankly um, where we have concentrated poverty and all the cascading problems that comes from that and so um, so I'm really curious about um, yeah what what happens when our the when when our um, our ideals are tested what what are the pragmatic tools we have to kind of meet human needs, right? Because when we're talking about cities, we're talking about people. And this is eventually what led me to get really interested, more interested than I ever thought I would be in pipes, <laughs> infrastructure, you know, the like literal foundation of how we build our city, right? It's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazingly, it's really quite beautiful in a way. I mean, the history of drinking water systems is unbelievable. I try to talk a little bit about it. It, it, it was like before we had like public drinking water systems, I mean, people, you know, had this like very hodgepodge tactics. They, they like filled, you know, buckets from the river. There was like a rule in Detroit where everybody's supposed to have a big cask of water in case there's a fire, which did not protect us from a fire. <laughs> um, we had, um, uh, there is, um, people would drill wells and they were allowed to do so as much as it can, even if it um, eliminated their neighbors' access to water. Like people were like having these like well wars, you know. Um, that was a big deal in Boston. Um, it was just not 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 going so well. Certainly not for public health, you know, where we had cholera epidemics just like wiping out ten percent of the city like every few years. Um, so people are like, you know what? Let's do this better. And so they started working on building. Uh, drinking water systems um, and it was initially they tried to do it just privately you know like like a subscription service you know for people who could afford it kind of like you might have heard fire departments did this similarly right you'd have a little 
tag on your thing. You're like, you can get my house if I have a fire because I'm a member of the fire service thing. But they tr- it turned out that fires don't <laughs> respect private property lines in the same way. And similarly, public health isn't um, contained by in, in the same way. So like, even if you and your neighbors all pay for this like lovely um, private water delivery, it's not going to, you know, exempt you from all the kind of public health crises of the whole town's like, you know, got contaminated water. Plus, they weren't even run that well. Like in Chicago, they kept having a problem of people like drawing a tap at their expensive, um, that they expensively installed in their home and they'd still get little fishes like coming out of it. <laughs> it wasn't that, it wasn't worrying that well. So they're like, we're going to do better. Um, so, so this in, insane, insane process to build huge infrastructure systems began and it was um, the original pipes were made out of like trees like hollowed out trees you still sometimes find them in the ground when you um, when people are doing digging and apparently um, uh, when there was a big uh, water main break in um, Detroit just this past spring uh, like the head of the water department was like on record in the department in the in the in the news media saying that he's pretty sure there is a water a tree used as a water pipe that is like still still in service <laughs> like wow. under Jefferson like under like our busiest street that wow. nobody wants to dig that's up so didn't con- I don't and he's not sure maybe that's not true but just the fact that he's putting that out there is like it's wild nice it's a wild um so that and eventually they started being made out of metal um because that um people are like this will work better and uh uh, they tried various kinds of metals, but um, from the very beginning, uh, lead was uh, on the table there. And there's a lot of reasons why lead would be great for water pipes. It was, um, it's very durable. It uh, can uh, last for a long time. Indeed, they've been under many of our homes for like decades. It's fl- but it's also flexible enough that when you're installing it, you can kind of like work it around like tree roots and other cellars and things like that. Um, it was abundant. We have a ton of lead that we could like dig up and mine. There's a lot of good reasons for it, but it's also poisonous. <laughs> and that part, that part, we're just like we just kind of sidestepped and did, and, and we're like, we're, it'll be fine. <laughs> you know? sure. At the very first meeting of the American Water Works Association, the professional association of people who do water stuff, it was in St. Louis in like the 1880s. On the agenda of that first meeting is like, aren't these lead pipes poisonous? <laughs> and they're like, nah, it's fine. Um, <laughs> it'll be fine. Like everybody was like, it's not going to be enough. Even if it does contaminate the water, it's not going to be enough to actually hurt anyone. It's um, you know, it's uh, we can we can control. It. And especially later on in later years when people water treatment was evolving. People are like, we can control this. It's not going to be that big of a deal. Um, um, the lead that people should worry about is, you know, and actually they weren't here yet, but decades later the conversation was the lead people should worry about is like in their paint and their, you know, leaded fuel and all these other sources. They're quite abundant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it's everywhere. Um, the lead industry was like really had a robust campaign for itself it was um the little dutch boy character that was like advertising to children it was literally like hardware stores would give out little paint books like coloring books to kind of get them early you know and uh, uh white lead paint was very popular a lot of people speculated that the infamous um uh the infamous uh 
idea of artists, the stereotype of artists is, you know, being kind of crazy <laughs> and melancholy and morbid it might have something to do with the fact that maybe they're all <laughs> poisoned, you know, like seriously, because they're working with it all the time. It's all over them. And it was great in paint. It made colors kind of pop. It was durable. It's like there's all these good reasons for it, except that it's poisonous. Um, Leaded fuel, you know, the, the story of that goes amazingly right back to Flint. <laughs> you know, the Charles Kettering, uh, who is a, a genius inventor, like invented like so many things, like incubators for premature babies and all, all sorts of things, um, like the free, like stuff that you use in refrigerators to keep things cold. But he also, um, you know, he was kind of partly responsible for, like, uh, majorly responsible for um, the development of leaded fuel in the 1920s. And it was solved a problem. It made cars run more smoothly and be less dependent on oil. But it was poisonous. And, and it was, um, in early on, there was all these stories of people who were factory workers who were developing this, tetraethyl lead for fuel, were going crazy. <laughs> there was this famous factory in... Um, infamous factory in New Jersey that was nicknamed by the workers themselves the house of the butterflies because uh, the workers there uh, were hallucinating like as if they were little butterflies like right in the periphery of their vision you know they would keep like kind of swatting at it in a very odd way like 40 some people like were were affected by this it was it was not a coincidence and it was and this led to um, you know a sort of like stop on lead fuel. People are starting getting nervous. They're just about to bring it to market. All these headlines were looking bad. Um, you can credit local reporters for bringing it out, frankly. Um, they had this big, like, sort of confab with the Surgeon General in Washington, D.C. They're like, should we, what should we do with this? Like, is it the job of the people who make this fuel to, um, additive to the fuel to prove that it's safe? Is it for the public health people who were challenging it? Is it up to them to prove that it's poisonous? It was this really interesting, difficult debate. Like the supporters of it were saying, you, um, um, it's, uh, anything, any kind of like development has risks, like cars themselves have risks. They, some people die sometimes in cars. Should we take all cars away? Like, you know, like this is like, they're like, we, they, they could put a lot of blame on the workers themselves, you know, they didn't handle it properly. They didn't follow instructions. Um, in the future, we'll have more restrictions. If somebody looks like they're hallucinating, we'll just fire them. It'll be fine. <laughs> and the, and the, and the people against it were like, you know, you know, I think this is going to be a big mistake. But public health science, like epidemiology, was at the time was like a, a point where it was, didn't totally have the tools necessary to show, like the impact, the wider impact. They could see something was wrong here, but they didn't. It was very difficult to like prove, you know. And there, um, this like bit of doubt, this this idea that like the fact that when somebody is lead poisoned, it um, it came from multiple sources, right? Like it never came from one source. It didn't come just from leaded fuel. It probably came from paint and all these water pipes and all this other stuff. Um, it, the, the fact that it is invisible, the fact that it affects people differently. Not everybody who's exposed to lead ends up, you know, brain damaged, you know? Some do, some don't. Um, that, 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 that doubt was very, you know, right for being exploited, you know, and so so we went forth boldly putting lead everywhere, everywhere, all the places that we could possibly put lead. Um, and it's it's to the credit of a lot of really heroic people who are very unpopular in their times that we have slowly been backing off that. You know, we're like, you know what? 
maybe we should come up with this, do something besides lead pipes. You know what? Maybe we're not going to do lead paint anymore. Um, maybe we're not going to, we, we, we phased out lead fuel. That's great. But what we haven't done is like fully reckon with the legacy of it. That's still all over, over environment. It just is. And we haven't really had a full, you know, accounting for that. And of course, because these are how patterns work. Um, some communities are more effective than others, you know, like older legacy communities. And, uh, where um, we've like concentrated like poorer people and people who are uh, generally people of color. And I think that is, um, um, there's this phrase that there's this one, there's this one writer, an academic who uses, he calls them sacrifice zones. He's like, he's like, people aren't, it's not that people of like wealth and privilege like are immune from this. Like we put lead pipes and lead paint like everywhere, you know, and we, we really got to reckon with it everywhere. But the fact that some people are on the like front lines of that, he calls that sacrifice zones, you know? And I think that's a very useful phrase. I think that's like kind of tight, come, bringing back things back to Flint. I think, um, the story of the water crisis like revealed with like uncanny drama how it has been it has had to endure being like on a sacrifice zone right it's at it's it's it was in a precarious place more vulnerable than many of its neighbors many of its other counterpart neighbors and there are choices made over decades that created that you know that concentrated that vulnerability that concentrated people and the thing um there's um like, just to kind of put the, like, brief story of the water crisis out there, and then I'm going to read just a tiny little bit, just a itty bit, just to give you a sense of the language here. I'm going to pass it over. But um, just so we have, like, kind of the plain story out there. Um, Flint had gotten its water from Lake Huron for more than 50 years, and it had a lot of complaints about it. it the water rates were super expensive, um, and I'll get back, come back to the reason why it's super expensive. They felt like they didn't have enough negotiating power with this like big utility but the water quality was good uh that wasn't a problem um in april of 2014 uh the city left detroit's water department and they're like we're going to join this brand new water department and this brand new water department serving mid-michigan was uh still under construction it wasn't even going to be able to service water for a couple of years so in the interim they're like we're going to reboot our old city plant and treat the water from the flint river ourselves and you know kind of and then follow through on the final transition in a few years when the other plants ready um, it's important to point out that the city had an emergency manager at the time so the emergency manager is um, an appointee of the state who's sent to uh, distressed cities and school districts and they hold all the power in the city like so the power that a mayor city council would have they have and they have additional powers behind that no elected officials have like the idea being that this is a necessary step for you know places that are really struggling somebody who's an outsider who's not like tied in with like you know election worries and stuff to make the hard decision to get the city back on track um this uh for flint in this like latest space they had like three and a half years of emergency management um which is a really long time and this emergency in all of the key water decisions happen under emergency management which is important context because the state had very direct responsibility here you know like it's representative of the states often say, say oh this was a failure of government at the local state and federal levels it was mostly the state <laughs> in a very direct way um so so they made this switch to the Flint River in April 2014. A lot of people really celebrated. They thought it would be great. 
Um, it uh, did not go great. <laughs> it was <laughs> the the old plant didn't get the staffing or the upgrades necessary to treat a more complex water source properly. And there, any river is going to be a more complex r water source than like Lake Huron. You can imagine if you take us a cup full of lake water and a cup full of river water, you can imagine it's like just more foggy, right? It's just, it's, it, it's a different thing, even a healthy river, especially a healthy river. Uh, most seriously, it didn't treat the water with something called corrosion control, and that's what you're supposed to add to the water at the plant so that when it passes through what is pretty much universally very old pipes, because again, we're talking about like logs. <laughs> but, like, like we, we have not upgraded our infrastructure in a very long time. So, but in, and adding corrosion control helps make it so that when you pass the water passes through the pipes, it does it helps protect it from the metals breaking down into it. It doesn't. It's not perfect. Like some of the metals do still get through. There is like that's how lead still shows up sometimes in people's water. Um, but it helps a lot, and it's federal law, and it didn't happen. Um, and within just a few weeks of the switch, you had people like on record kind of reaching out to whoever they could think of to say like, this, something doesn't seem right. It doesn't taste the same. It doesn't feel the same. It doesn't like when I shower, when I shampoo, when I drink. To be fair, that probably would have happened no matter what, even if this water was completely healthy, it is different water. But the, the concerns kept coming in um, as the pipes were in fact corroding, they were breaking down. Um, eventually when people started seeing like brown water and, um, and orange water, that was <coughs> corroded iron, that was rust that was showing up, it was literally breaking down. Um, you couldn't see the lead, but of course that was most dangerous. I mean that is, it is the, no amount of lead is healthy, all of it is bad, especially for infants and children um, who are still developing. So it gets, it's, it gets into your body and it like stays there. That's, that's a key issue. And then it, like, it, it, it can poison you. Um, it's also unhealthy for adults. It's especially correlated with um, reproductive issues, like fertility issues, miscarriages, stillbirths. It's correlated with that. Um, there are a number of other things that aren't lead that um, were also concerns. There was um, E. coli bacteria violations. There was a TTHMs, um, a violation of TTHMs, which is like... Um, um, it's a byproduct of chlorine, you know, that um, was in an amount that was dangerous and could cause cancer. There was um, a two-year outbreak of Legionnaire's disease that wasn't made public until after the fact. And Legionnaire's disease, that's a, it's caused by water. It's a waterborne bacteria that it's a very, it causes what is like a serious kind of pneumonia. And that, and that kills people. It actually killed people. This is, the death toll wasn't lead per se but like you know from this other um thing and 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 these things were like so the, the these problems kept escalating um to the point that even like a general motors engine plant in october like five months after the switch october of 2014 was like this water is corroding our parts so much that we're gonna have to leave the city's water and hook onto a suburb that's still getting water from detroit that's how bad it is it's um cost the city four hundred thousand dollars just in their water bills and uh, people were understandably like, well, if it's not okay for GMs, like machines, like, what, is it okay for me to drink? And I was like, sure, <laughs> go ahead, it's fine. It took another year, a year, before the state finally is like, you know what, okay. <laughs> it took a year of like a tremendous amount of community organizing, who are in, people who are insisting on being seen making themselves visible when nobody was paying attention to them, when they did not have the power of the local vote even, uh, to uh, 
try to understand, make clear what was going on here. And not just protests and stuff, too, in public meetings. So they did do that. There was, they were also, like, there's a lot of trying to, like, map out symptoms to try to figure out what was going on, kind of like this kind of, like, grassroots epidemiology to kind of figure things out. Um, they started reaching out to outsiders who had authority that they weren't seen as having and got a lot of su some support uh, from folks uh, that helped them carry out, for example, a big citywide independent water test to give them some data to contradict what the state's data was saying, and it did contradict it, and it was a better and more comprehensive test, so it was really hard for the state to refute, though they did. <laughs> they did for a few more months. Um, there was a you know, pediatrician who's like, um, you know, like uh, she and uh, a water engineer who knew a lot about lead and water kind of worked together to show that uh, since the water switched, like lead levels have been actually rising in Flint's kids. And not just that we have too much lead in the water, but also it's hurting people is what they're trying to say. Um, there's a, a EPA guy, Environmental Protection Agency guy, who kind of went out of his way to document what was going on to show that it's not just a problem of one house or two houses. It's a big citywide problem. After a year and a half, this kind of clicked over finally, and the state conceded, okay, it's a big problem. We're going to hook it back to Detroit. Um, that didn't instantly fix everything. That was good. It was a huge win, but it didn't fix everything because those pipes had just broken down so much. And this is why um, that is a, replacing those as a process that has gone to um, um, to this day. I mean, I think it's supposed to be done like at the end of this year, early next year. So that's good. That's good. I mean, but there's this like you can imagine this like long aftermath of people trying to figure out well, what now? <laughs> well, how does this? How does you know? How has this affected people's like long-term health needs, education needs, social service needs, um, uh, trust in this government? A lot of people do not trust it. Like the state will be like, hey, your water's fine to drink now. And people are like, nope. <laughs> I do not, I will never believe you ever again. Even though it's a different people maybe working at the agency. No. <laughs> um, there's uh, uh, the story of accountability that's very unresolved right now. You know, like this was a decidedly man-made crisis. Um, it didn't have to happen. Actual choices caused it and prolonged it. Um, will anybody be held accountable for choices they made? That is, that is remains to be seen. <laughs> um, there's been a long saga there. And this is just going to be a little piece I read. I, um, this story is like haunting in its own right, but it's, um, I think it's especially haunting to, that it's happening to a city within in the Great Lakes region, right? Like we, here we are, right, among like the most beautiful and abundant water resources on the face of the planet, on the face of the planet. Flint itself, it's like, besides being a river town, it's like 70 miles from Lake Huron and 70 miles from Saginaw Bay. It, um, uh, scarcity isn't its issue, um, like it might be in other parts of the country or world. Um, it's, uh, it's something different. So I'm just going to read just a tiny bit so you can get a sense of this, and then I'm going gonna, gonna to change it, things up. Call them inland seas. Carved out at the end of the last glacial period more than 10,000 years ago and filled first with the meltwater of retreating sheets of ice, the Great Lakes hold about one-fifth of the world's surface freshwater. Spill it across the United States and it will settle over the 48 uh, contiguous states at an even depth of 10 feet. At 94,000 square miles, their surface area is about equal to that of the United Kingdom, and their drainage basin covers 200,000 square miles, almost the size of France. 
On a map, that basin stretches across 10 degrees of latitude and 18 degrees of longitude. The water is in constant motion, powered by rolling waves and rip currents, and engines strong enough to modulate the climate. If you stand on the moon, you can pick out their telltale shock of deep blue. Oh, and we just had the anniversary of the moon. I looked at it. Michigan lies like a handprint in the water, an assertion of the human self in the wild sea. I am here. Its two curving peninsulas are shaped by where the waves of four of the five interconnected lakes crash. Michigan's 3,200 miles of coastline, more than any other state except Alaska, turn from soft blowing sand dunes into craggy beaches, into the brilliantly colored cliffs and turrets of the pictured rocks, where Henry Wadsworth Longfellow set his famous poem about Hiawatha. Tens of thousands of tree-riddled islands are scattered over the Great Lakes. One of them is Isle Royale, the only national park that is an island and reachable only by seaplane or a three and a half hour ferry ride. Moose roam among it fat balsam firs, skinny aspens, mountain ash, and red maple trees. At dusk, loons sing their mournful call. You've been listening to part one of a talk with Anna Clark about her award-winning book, The Poisoned City, Flint's Water, and the American Urban Tragedy. Join us next week for the second part of this presentation, when Anna will be joined by Flint-based writer and former journalist Robert Campbell. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts, or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.